The New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 21, 1-17. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these people are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. The word of the Lord. What ancient hope, it's good to be with you this morning. On this Palm Sunday as we continue through the book of, of Matthew. And today come to Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But before we turn to this text, let us together turn to our great Lord in prayer. God our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you Lord for this word. And Lord, I do pray that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions to it, and that through it, Lord, we would come to understand more fully and to love more deeply Christ Jesus. The Christ Jesus who was presented to us freely and graciously in the gospel. The Christ Jesus who confronts us, who encounters us, who embraces us here in this text. And we ask these things in the name of Christ and in the Holy Spirit that he has sent to us. Amen. Well, it's not uncommon to hear statements such as, there are many ways to God, that there are many roads through which we can walk and find God. It may be through this or that religion. It may be through this or that spiritual practice. Any of these paths, if traveled earnestly, will lead us to God. For instance, Arthur C. Brooks, a columnist for The Atlantic, he describes faith in religion as 
your spiritual journey. And as a spiritual adventure, that is an adventure in and of itself. Faith here is spoken as a kind of path, a road, a way, as something that we seek. And what is structuring all of these notions is faith as a journey. And even more, it's faith as our journey. We are the ones taking the path. We are the ones roughing the road. We are the ones walking the way. Faith is our journey to God. But we have to ask ourselves, is that true? Is faith really our journey to God? Because if we come to God, then we are the ones who set the parameters of the search and the journey. If we come to God, then yes, any number of religious paths can get us there. If we come to God, then we are the ones who decide how God is to be found. So let's think about that. Let's think about it deeply. And let's consider that perhaps we have got the whole thing backwards. And that's precisely the message of the present text. What do we see here? This is not us coming to God. No, this whole passage is about God coming to us. Christianity is not about our search for God. It's about God's search for us. It's God's great journey to humanity. Even more, as we'll see, it's God become human to come to the human. If God comes to us, then faith is not our journey. If God comes to us, then everything is different. In today's passage, what it shows us is God coming to us in Christ's entry into Jerusalem. And so look at, let's look at this passage, and let's do so under three headings. God comes to us. God keeps coming to us. And lastly, God comes to us again. God comes to us. This passage shows us how Jesus enters Jerusalem as he begins the very last week of his life before he comes to the cross. Here, finally, we see the son of David. We see the long-awaited king make his entrance into Jerusalem, the very city from which the house of David ruled. But immediately, something seems off. He has not entered the city in the way that we've expected. Matthew tells us that in the fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey. How would we expect a king to enter his city? Not on a lowly donkey, not on a pack animal, not on a mere beast of burden. No, we expect a king to come on his great war horse, on a powerful steed, perhaps even a chariot pulled by several stallions, but certainly, certainly not on a he-hawing donkey. But here is Christ the king coming on the donkey. This would not be wholly unlike coming to some exclusive gala event, driving a 2010 Chrysler Town and Country, a car that I know a little bit 
about. It's a great car, but it doesn't fight quite fit the occasion. But there's more. Not only is a donkey not a kingly animal, but as commentators point out, in contrast to a war horse, which symbolizes war, entering into a city on a donkey is a sign of peace. And so what do we have here? We have Christ, God become human, coming to us in humility and peace. And so we together let out a collective sigh. Ah. Again, if religion and spirituality and faith are all about us coming to God, then we are the ones who map out the course. But if God comes to us, he is the one who sets the terms of the search. And what do we have here? Well, we have God coming to us on the very terms that we were hoping. Phew, we think. This is great. We didn't even know, need to go out and find God. He saved us a trip. He came to us. And best of all, God came to us in the peace and the humility of a donkey. He's like a guest, we think. A guest who doesn't want to put us out too much. No war horse is necessary. He tells us that any animal will do. Yes, the donkey will be fine as, as long as it's not too much trouble. He comes in peace just to let us know we think that everything is okay, that we're fine with God. He comes as reassurance. We think he's like a voicemail from our parents just letting us know that they're thinking of us. It's God. I'm here. We're all at peace. We're all good. And so let me just go ahead and help you with what you're already doing. Let me come alongside you like a secretary. Let me do exactly what you think I should do. Let me be exactly who you think I should be. Let me be your donkey and follow you and carry whatever you think I should carry. And so what does the crowd expect? Well, it expects the same thing that we expect. We all expect God to affirm us in everything we think and hope and feel and desire and what we're already doing. In their case, they're expecting a king who will exalt them over their Roman occupiers. God, come and do this. God, come and do that. Exalt us, humble them. And what is salvation in their case? Well, it's deliverance from the Romans. It's reestablishing the throne of David, becoming a powerful political entity. It's getting political power and strength and prowess. And we also do this. Even if our particular desires may or may not be different from theirs. Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist, they're, they're well known for their book Soul Searching and, and coining of what has come to be uh, the default religion for much of American culture, moralistic therapeutic deism. And they write the following about this quite common faith. God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. We want a God whose main concern is fixing all of our personal and professional problems as we define them, making us feel good about ourselves all the time and then backing off again until something else goes wrong. We want a God who will let us define our own problems on our own terms. 
who will let us define salvation on our own terms, who will even let us define our enemies on our own terms. We want a God that we can lead along like a donkey. We want a God that we can make our very own beast of burden. We want him to carry our bags and follow our commands and direct him to where he needs to go. A donkey is actually a pretty good picture of the God that we want. We want a God who sits on a donkey next to our war horse. We want a God who comes just like this. And so what happens when Jesus arrives? The crowd receives him with celebration. They throw their cloaks down before him and they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And what do they mean by this? Commentators note that Hosanna can literally be translated into save, please. The crowd is seeking salvation. And this is certainly not a wrong thing to seek. But again, if God comes to us in loneliness and peace, then we can define salvation, we think, on our own terms. If God comes to us lowly, then he's giving us the high place over him. If we are at peace with God, then we are not the problem. And so, yes, please, please save us. But let us tell you who and what we need saving from. In their case, they think they're fine. But the others, those Gentiles or those Roman occupiers or those less devoted fellow citizens or those overly devoted fellow citizens, they are the problem. We are at peace with God, and so in the end, it is God and us against them, whoever we define them to be. And we know this feeling. We find ourselves in very different circumstances, but we can definitely relate to these tensions. A recent article in The Guardian gives us the following shocking statistic. Quote, animosity towards those in the opposing party is higher than at any time in living memory. 42% of registered voters believe Americans in the other party are downright evil. 42% of registered voters think that people who don't share their political beliefs are downright evil. And if they are downright evil, then certainly, then absolutely, they are the problem. They are the enemies. Yes, God is at peace with us. He comes on a donkey. But certainly, he is at war with them. Hosanna, save us, please. Save us from these downright evil people. Save us from them. God has come to us. God is at peace with us, though not with them. God has come to fulfill our agenda, our purposes, our aims. And we will lead God along like a donkey, trailing him behind our war horse. And so, yes, in the end, perhaps faith really is our journey. It turns out we were really right all along. We were already on the proper path, and in contrast to absolutely everyone else, we were the ones who were living rightly. 
Technically, yes, God did come to us, but God came to help us on the journey that we're already on. He came to be our donkey, our pack animal. God came to hold our bags as we make the trip that we're already making. And so, really, we're still the ones setting the course. But here's the problem. Christ keeps going. His coming doesn't stop here. And this brings us to our second point. God keeps coming to us. Jesus continues on his journey into Jerusalem, and he comes to the place where you'd expect any Jewish king to come. He enters the temple. But what is it that he does? Well, we read, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And all of us, we, we tend to like this part. And that's because we're certain that it's other people's tables that are being turned over. All of us, in some way, shape, or form, are certain that if Jesus came into this church, he would applaud everything that we're doing. And from there, he'd start driving out the worshipers of all those other churches down the street. We're certain that in this narthex, right over there, that table would remain upright with its brochures and its bulletins and whatever else is sitting on it right now. Yes, Jesus, thank you for affirming the fact that we are the ones, the only ones, who get it right. But we fail to do this text justice if we don't see Jesus overturning absolutely everyone's tables. As we read, all of the religious leaders are angry for what he's done. They tolerated the crowd crying out, Hosanna, but now that they've seen what he's up to, they are furious. All of them. All of them. Remember that in Jesus' Jerusalem, there were two main streams of religious life. That of the Pharisees and that of the Sadducees. Who were the Pharisees? Well, they were those on the right of the religious establishment. They had made service to God ultimately a matter of working hard, of separating themselves from anyone who disagreed with their form of life, of collecting money even at the sake of caring for one's parents, of laying a crushing load of burdens on people in the form of rules, of thinking that sin is something that we can handle just fine by our own efforts, of sizing others up with the very harshest of judgments. And who were the Sadducees? Well, they were those on the left of the religious establishment. They had tied themselves to the status quo of their contemporary world, not seeking to ruffle the feathers of the pagan Romans and their Greco-Roman sophistication. They were the cultural gatekeepers who possessed control of the official priesthood and its official training institutions. They held to a non-miraculous kind of Christianity that denied life after death, that denied the resurrection. And we're naive if we don't think that churches and denominations risk falling in to these categories. Like the Pharisees, like those on the right of the religious establishment, we have certain opinions of who should and should not be in church. 
We scrutinize each other and especially those outside of the church with the harshest evaluations. We're so worried about the surrounding culture and separating ourselves from it that we are more committed to reacting against the culture than following the guidance of Scripture. And of course, this too is just another way of putting the culture in the driving seat as we primarily define ourselves against it. We don't take seriously the way that God wants us to use our money and our resources in serving and caring for others. And again, as we looked at before, the Pharisees implement a practice that allows adult children to forgo the care of their own parents. And so we can only imagine what other social and societal obligations they dismissed. Like the Sadducees, like those on the left of the religious establishment, we might identify as Christians, but rather than telling people what we stand for, we first want to assure them that we're not that kind of Christian. Unlike those Pharisees, we don't want to get carried away with it. We don't want our beliefs to interfere with our positions or notoriety. If it's in our best cultural or professional interest to reject or at least remain silent on this or that particular doctrine, be it the resurrection or ethics or something else, we're glad to oblige. We crave the respect and acceptance of the cultural status quo just as the Sadducees crave that of the Greco-Roman intelligentsia. We don't take seriously the way that God calls us to steward the good gifts of our bodies because, hey, the resurrection and God's intended perfection of the human body and soul have no bearing on this life. Like the Pharisees, we offer a Christianity that offers no life. And like the Sadducees, we risk offering a Christianity that couldn't possibly change anyone's life. Pastor Tim Keller, he tells us that if we as Christians are always making people angry as we share our convictions, then something is wrong. Likewise, Keller tells us if we never make people angry, then something is wrong. We might say that to always anger our neighbor, that's the way of the Pharisee. The way of faith that builds me up by knocking others down. The way of faith that sets my group up against everyone else. Likewise, we might say that to never anger our neighbor, well, that's the way of the Sadducee. The way of faith as a cultural accommodation that seeks to please the cultural status quo. My guess is that most of us in this room risk falling into the trap of the Sadducee. Rather than seeking to co-opt Jesus like a Pharisee, perhaps we find ourselves embarrassed of Jesus and his teaching as we go about the day. Ask yourself, and, and I need to ask myself this question, do we find ourselves hiding our Christian beliefs? This too is a table that Jesus seeks to overturn as Christ warned us earlier in Matthew in chapter 10. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. To, de to deny what we know is true for the sake of cultural approval, this is the way of the Sadducee. However, a key problem with both the Sadducees and the Pharisees is that they believed their own tables did not need to be overturned. 
And the crowd followed suit. Notice who alone is said to cry out Hosanna after this incident in the temple. Only three groups left. The blind, the lame, the children. And we'll come back to this point later, but for the present, we have to ask, where is this great mass of people that earlier in the day were hailing Christ with joy? They've already left. This is not what they signed up for. If Christ came to disrupt things in the temple, then clearly we don't have the peace with God that we thought we did. Clearly, his humility is not the kind of humility that we thought it was. It's not the submission of the donkey. It's something else. A humble donkey with peace at peace with our lives and the way that we're leading him or leading them would not overturn our tables. And why is it that Christ overturns the tables, the tables that represent all of the various religious leaders in Jerusalem? Well, what we find here is a practice of buying and selling animals for sacrifice. People were coming to the temple from all over the surrounding world, and they were doing so to sacrifice animals at the temple. And as you can imagine, taking animals on this long journey was no easy task. And so it became the practice to have animals for sale in Jerusalem, which visitors could buy in order to offer sacrifices. In theory, there's nothing wrong with this practice, but something has gone wrong here in the way that it's being carried out. Commentators differ on this point concerning where the fault lies. For instance, perhaps it's that the, in the exchanges, the financial exchanges, Perhaps they've become dishonest, even exploitative, as the sellers are consumed with greed. Perhaps the location of the selling inside of the temple structure itself, perhaps that's the problem. Regardless, it's clear that this practice has taken on a prominence that has displaced the true purpose of the temple. As Jesus tells us, it is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This practice has replaced the true purpose of the temple. It has become, so to speak, the main event. And in attacking this practice and turning over the tables of the money changers, Jesus is confronting anything that seeks to displace God in our hearts and in our worship. Again, recall that 42% of registered voters in America believe that those in the other party are downright evil. This is a terrifying statistic. But even if, as I hope, we never affirm this, all the same, all of us can feel this. We live in a culture where everything becomes political. Everything gets broken up into left and right. But again, God turns over all our tables. He turns over all the ways that we have made something else more primary in our life than him. He turns over all the ways that our worship has been displaced by something else. And so Christ makes us uncomfortable. Christ will anger both Pharisees and Sadducees, he will anger anyone who sees the world primarily through a political lens. 
He will anger all of us just as he angered that crowd that earlier chanted Hosanna. That crowd that has already dispersed. And I say this just as much to myself as anyone else. If Jesus ceases to make us uncomfortable, short of our perfect perfection, our perfect sanctification in the life to come, if Jesus ceases to make us uncomfortable, we have ceased to actually wrestle with who Jesus is. Among other things, Christ will not let us divide the world up into us versus them. He will not let any of us off the hook. And to be sure, he will turn over the tables of our own culture. For instance, consider the book Compassion and Conviction put out by the AND campaign, a text which, which is a kind of primer on Christian civic engagement. It calls us to reject the either-or questions that lead us to the us-versus-them thinking, that leave our tables we think upright while their tables are overturned. The authors pose the following false alternatives. Do you advocate social justice or family values? Do you support women or are you against abortion? Do you love the poor or do you believe in personal responsibility? Then the authors give readers the following advice. Don't answer those questions, or at least not in the way that they're asked. They are based on a false premise and thus create a false dilemma for Christians. This is what happens when we allow the world to frame the questions and the issues for us. This is what happens when the focus of the temple, the focus of our lives, the focus of our worship becomes something other than God. If Christ overturns our tables, it means that we are not the ones who get to define what we are saved from. If Christ is the one who flips our tables, then it is God who defines what our problem is, what our greatest need is, what salvation actually looks like. This is what it means for God to come to us. So yes, we must cry, Hosanna, God, save us, please. But God alone will tell us what this saving actually looks like. Again, it is God who comes to us, not we who come to God. And that brings us to our third and final point. God comes to us again. So then, what is it that we need to be saved from? The answer is not ultimately this or that group. No, we must be saved from the sin that dwells within every part of us, deep within our every human faculty. As the Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn wisely wrote, if only it were so simple... If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. If Christ came to separate the world into the good and the bad, none of us, none of us would be left standing. Again, he turns over the tables of everyone. 
Christ confronts all the ways that we try to make God and our search for God and everything about God ultimately a matter of our own wants, our own comforts, our own greed, our own agendas, our own self-justification. God comes to us and we find out that he is other than we thought. And so what do we do? We, like the crowd, leave. Again, the only ones left to shout Hosanna after the temple fiasco are the blind, the lame, the children. The only ones left are the ones who know that they are absolutely dependent upon God. The ones who know that if they are to be saved, it must be a gift. It must be holy, God's own doing. And friends, all the better for them. For Christ has not come to separate the world into two groups. Not the good and the bad, not the Pharisees and the Sadducees, not the right and the left, not any other man-made division we might come up with. But even here, this isn't exactly right, because we do still find two groups. It's not any of these, but, has, as, sorry, but as is often said, Christ comes and he separates the world into the proud and the humble. And so who is it that truly sees God? Who truly comes to God? Who truly looks to God as their father? It is the blind who see. It is the lame who come. It is the children who trust. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey. As St. Augustine tells us, it is the humility of God that heals the pride of humanity. And how does he do this? Well, the same crowd that earlier shouted Hosanna will, in just a few days, be crying, be screaming for Christ's execution. God has come to them, and they have decided they don't like God. God came to them in Christ as God the Son become human, and they kill him. But Christ, the very humility of God, the true humility which they earlier failed to understand and discern, he gave up his life freely. On the cross, he suffers more than just an overturned table. He is killed taking upon himself the punishment for all of the ways that we have carved up the world to make us and our group good and to make you and your group bad. Christ suffers the penalty of this perfect justice that sees clearly and fully the evil that cuts through every human heart. But to accept this humility, it takes humility. Can you acknowledge that you have sought to make yourself good by seeking to make your neighbor bad? Can you acknowledge that the Sadducee, the Pharisees, those on the right, those on the left, those of any group, they're all tempted, we're all tempted to demonize the other and to ignore and overlook and deny our own faults? Can you acknowledge that we all stand in need of forgiveness? Can you acknowledge that you stand in need 
of forgiveness? Can you personally trade pride for humility? If so, Christ offers to become the ultimate beast of burden, to bear the very punishment that you deserve on the cross. And Christ also offers you his perfect life of love for both God and neighbor, so that you may stand before God the, the Father with his perfect righteousness. This is the peace with God that Christ offers. He came not because there was peace between us and God, but in order to establish that peace. Yes, God has come to us. But God has come as a human to do what we could not do. God has come to us by accomplishing the fullness of salvation for us. Hosanna, save us. Please, God, we must be careful what we ask for because this is exactly what Christ has done. For our salvation, God did it all on our behalf. But again, to receive this, you must be humble. You must admit your blindness, your own incapacities to come to God, your own childlike dependence. As Augustine tells us, O oh Lord, command what you will and give what you command. However, this is not the last time that Christ will come. Christ was raised from the tomb, never to die again. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he will return to judge the living and the dead. And this truth helps us make sense of two remaining threads that we see in today's passage. First, Matthew tells us that the disciples brought two animals to Christ, a donkey and a colt. A donkey and what likely refers to a horse that's old enough to be ridden upon. Even more, when Matthew quotes Zechariah 9.9, he leaves out the following line from Zechariah's original prophecy, a line that is perhaps best translated as follows, righteous and victorious. That is, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and victorious, humble and mounted on a donkey. So what is going on here? Where is this horse? And why would Matthew leave out that Christ's coming to his people is victorious? Well, I believe the best way to make sense of this is that both Zechariah and Matthew are telling us about two comings of Christ. Here in today's passage, we find the first humble coming. But as Revelation 19 tells us, Christ will come again and he will not come upon a donkey. He will come upon a horse. He will come in full and complete victory. He will return upon his great war horse to judge the living and the dead. On that day, he will come and he will set the whole world right. On that day, perfect justice will be realized. On that day, Christ will judge each of us for all that we have done. And either you yourself will bear the weight of that eternal punishment, of that most perfect justice, or Christ himself in all of his might 
will gently stoop down to you as you come before his throne and assure you personally that he himself has already borne your punishment upon the cross. Either Christ will bear the burden of your sin like a donkey, or he will execute justice upon it like a war horse. He will separate all of us completely and eternally into the proud and the humble. And so what can we say but Hosanna, God, please, in your mercy, through the Son of David, through Jesus Christ, save us. Hosanna. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have come to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that it's not about our journey to you, but your journey to us. It's not about us doing this and doing that, but it's ultimately about Christ and what he has done in securing our salvation. And what that means is that we must learn to receive that gift. Make us humble, Lord, to be able to do just that and help us to receive it with greater assurance, greater joy, greater love, greater thankfulness each and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.